At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to what is not really a new episode of the American Hauntings podcast. You've just got me, Troy Taylor, this time, but I wanted to offer you a free look at one of the special episodes that we did for our Patreon subscribers recently and see if you like it enough to give it a try. If you don't know about our Patreon program, it's a way for you to support this show, which is undoubtedly your favorite podcast. And get some perks like bonus episodes like this one, discounts, shirts, stuff in the mail, and other things. It's also a way for you to help make sure that the show continues. If you don't understand how important Patreon is for the American Hauntings podcast, we always tell you to go back and try to listen to the first season and compare it to now. Yeah, it's that important. And it was Patreon that helped it get better. So check it out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. We'd love to have you as part of the family. And now on with this bonus episode of the show. Los Angeles says, I'm pretty sure we've revealed in the regular podcast episodes of the season is a very weird place. As the film capital of the world and as a place where dreams come true and sometimes come to die, it's not surprising that the very stones from which a city was built can sometimes be a little strange too. Archaeologists of the future will doubtless be very perplexed by a city where houses look like caves or mushrooms, where giant donuts are seen as landmarks, and where Tudor mansions, Cape Cod cottages, Cinderella castles, Mayan temples, and Spanish haciendas can be found in one place and sometimes on the same street. The movies and the movie stars, directors, and producers who made them had quite an effect on the homes and buildings that are found in LA. But the supernatural sometimes has had one too. There are many locations that have become haunted because of the people who built them, the events that happened within them, and strangest of all, sometimes the ghosts even had a hand in their construction. Or so the legends say. In LA, everything is bigger than life. That occasionally includes the stories that circulated here for the last century or so. The timeless and fantastical Bradbury Building in downtown LA is a movie landmark, widely known for its significant appearances in films like 500 Days of Summer, Marlowe, and of course, Blade Runner. It's been in many other films and television shows too, and there's no mistaking it. Heavily influenced by the utopian sci-fi novel called Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, the vast five-story structure is bizarrely magnificent and a steampunk nightmare. The outside isn't overly inviting, but once inside, you enter a center courtyard filled with natural light streaming in from a skylight. 
Caged elevators surrounded by ornate wrought iron lacework are surrounded by staircases, railings, and balconies that cast eerie shadows around the courtyard. You've seen it in some movie, even if you don't know it. But the Bradbury has a connection to the occult that most people don't know about. It's a story of a gold mining magnate who wanted to put his name on a building but had an odd vision about what he wanted. The quest that followed led him to turn down a prominent architect and mysteriously commission a totally untrained one instead. And that not quite architect, George H. Wyman, turned to ghosts and to literature to pull it off. Well, in 1892, Lewis Bradbury, who had made his millions in gold mines, decided to commission a building that would always bear his name. He approached a prominent architect, Summer P. Hunt, to create it. Hunt, who alone and with partners would design a number of clubs and museums and private homes for many wealthy clients, was LA's premier architect of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Hunt drew up plans for the proposed building, but when Bradbury visited the office to look them over, he wasn't impressed with any of his ideas. And that's when things got weird. As Bradbury was leaving the office, he stopped to talk with Hunt's draftsman, a young man named George H. Wyman. At that point, Wyman had no training and zero experience as an architect, but Bradbury, for reasons that remain unexplained, walked up to Wyman and offered him the chance to design his large, high-profile, half-a-million-dollar office building. Well, Wyman was justifiably stunned by the offer. He was completely unqualified and initially turned it down. It would be essentially stealing a customer from his boss, after all. Well, Bradbury persisted, and the young man agreed to think it over. But what he really wanted to do was consult with his brother about the offer. Oh, and have I mentioned that his brother was dead? Using a planchette, a device that's also a pointer and a Ouija board, except this one had a pencil attached, he tried to make contact with his brother so he'd know what to do. It wasn't long before the planchette began to move on the paper. It spelled out the words, Take Bradbury, you will be. After that, there was a word that at first appeared to be gibberish, but when read upside down, it supposedly said, Successful. Wyman decided to take the job, and he was successful. The Bradbury was such an exciting job, he eventually went to school to study to be an actual architect. The design for his first commission, though, was taken right out of the pages of a book and was done because of encouragement from a ghost. Thanks to that book and because of Blade Runner, most people connect the Bradbury to science fiction, which inevitably causes many to mistake the name with having something to do with author Ray Bradbury, but it doesn't. Well, not really anyway. There is a connection to one of the late sci-fi author's best friends, though. The grandson of George Wyman was Bradbury's friend Forrest J. Ackerman, the longtime publisher of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, which directly led to many people my age becoming lifelong lovers of horror and sci-fi films. As we talked about in one of the earlier episodes of the Haunted Hollywood season, Southern California movie palaces were often designed in wild and daring styles to entice audiences through their doors. Sid Grauman's Egyptian and Chinese theaters is a good example of this. But many architects didn't stop with theaters. They also built homes that looked like something out of a storybook or at least like a temple from the jungles of Mexico. 
Shortly after World War I, famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright built a number of what were called Mayan revival homes in LA. The houses were built with cubic designs, horizontal windows, and accentuated depths and shadows. They looked like fortresses, which is essentially what they were. While many designers were embracing an Egyptian theme after the discovery of the many tombs in the Valley of Kings that uh, were taking place around this time, including that of King Tut, Wright decided to delve into Mayan culture. Well, just a few years before, Wright's son Lloyd had moved to Hollywood and had become the head of the design and drafting department at Paramount Studios. He was directly responsible for the medieval castles, the sultan's palaces, and the larger-than-life places that moviegoers saw on screen. When he opened his own architectural firm in 1921, he snagged his own customers and also employed the Mayan look and the patterned concrete blocks that his father had made famous in his own designs. Well, between the two of them, they created some of the most unique homes in Los Angeles, and they're still standing today. Look up the Millard House or the Hollyhock House, and you'll see what I mean. They are unusual. But a couple of them have earned reputations that are somewhat sinister as well. One of them, with horror movie connections, was actually thought to be cursed by its builder, and the other, well, let's just say the reputation around that one may be more fiction than fact, but... It's interesting anyway. But if you're an old horror movie buff like me, especially if you love Vincent Price movies, there's no way you don't recognize the Ennis House, which was one of Wright's Mayan designs. Legends say that the spirits of a long line of owners, inhabitants, and maybe even Lloyd Wright himself remain within these walls. But the place's greatest claim to fame came from the opening sequences of The House on Haunted Hill, the campy 1959 Vincent Price film that begins with a shot of the Ennis House's exterior over which Price's ghostly face is superimposed. In the foreground, a funeral procession carries a group of revelers up the hill. As the cars near the motor court, Price's character offers $10,000 to any of his guests who can survive 12 hours in the place. The hearse is empty now, he intones, but after a night on Haunted Hill, who knows? The house has become one of LA's architectural jewels. It's covered with 16 by 16 inch concrete blocks patterned to look like abstract squares that give it that jungle temple look. There are art glass windows everywhere and a miter glass windows that are located in strategic corners to offer views of the downtown and the Pacific. But the design alone is not enough to maintain its hold over the city. It's been described as evoking a pagan history of pre-Columbian California that catches the eye and forces it to look at the menacing house that sits on the hill. Architect Leo Marmel once said, quote, it's inherently dramatic. From the city, you can't help but wonder what that majestic thing on the hill is. Then when you get up there and look back at the city, it's breathtaking. It's both an object that invites us and piques our curiosity. And once you arrive, your curiosity is only enhanced. The house is sort of a freak. And I mean that in the best way. It's an aberration, as all truly individualistic things are. And it's got a Blade Runner connection, too. It was Harrison Ford's apartment in the movie. According to Eric Wright, the son and grandson of the men behind the Mayan revival designs in L.A., the Ennis House has a strange story behind it. Eric was with his father in 1940 when the house was being renovated to prevent damage to the house from the earthquakes and unstable environment of Los Angeles. He recalls his father being happy with the work that was being done, and he turned to the boy and said, Good news! I hope the curse of the Ennis house can finally be removed. In 1924, when construction began on the Ennis house, Frank Lloyd Wright was 57 years old and widely viewed as a man whose best work 
was behind him. It had been two decades since he dazzled the architectural world with the low-slung Chicago prairie houses that evoked the flat golden beauty of his native Midwest. Since that time, his designs had been best described as hopelessly backward. If being irrelevant wasn't enough, Wright had also been embroiled on scandals that tainted his work. In 1909, he'd left his family to run off with a client's wife, eventually setting her up at Taliesin, his Wisconsin country estate. In 1914, a deranged servant set fire to the house and axed Wright's mistress and several others to death as they tried to flee. Eventually, Wright divorced and remarried, but his new wife was a morphine addict and many public scenes ensued. So Wright did what other Americans hoping to start over did, he moved to California. Around 1901, the Ennises had come west from Pittsburgh, where Charles had been a manager and buyer for Joseph Home & Company, a grand downtown department store. After a brief partnership with another Los Angeles merchant, Ennis opened his own store on South Spring Street. Not much else is known about the Ennis family, but they had enough money, enough taste, and the social aspirations that led to them hiring Wright to design their extravagant home. And extravagant it was. The house was supposed to cost $56,000, although Eric Wright would later estimate that the couple spent as much as $150,000, which was a staggering sum for the 1920s. Why? Well, six months into the project, things began to go awry. The surveys on which the retaining walls were based proved inaccurate, and as a result, the concrete blocks buckled in key places, causing delays and cost overruns. Upset, the Ennises were also angry that Wright had returned to Taliesin and left construction in his son's hands. He publicly supported his son's skills, but privately, and this was a lifelong habit, he berated and criticized him, further hampering the project. The Ennises soon jumped into the project too. Mabel Ennis insisted on bossing around the crew, leading to Lloyd banning her from the site. Finally, on December 10th, 1924, less than nine months after work had started, the clients and the architects went their separate ways. Although the exterior of the house was nearly finished, the interior was completely unfinished. In completing it, the Ennises ignored some of Wright's specifications. Shale floors proposed for a room that runs the length of the building were tossed out in favor of more fashionable but less appropriate marble. Vaulted ceilings planned for the living room and dining room were replaced with flat ones, destroying what Wright had imagined would be a dramatically elevating effect. Tiffany chandeliers, which Wright saw as garish, were purchased for the living room, while a bass release of the Mexican fire god that he regarded as ridiculous was installed over a dining room fireplace. Overall, though, it was still Wright's design, and the most dramatic effects that he planned stayed in place. Even so, he was angry and upset with the changes, and in a letter to them, he wrote, quote, It is a great pity, and one that no one that knows what the building might have been will ever forget or forgive. When the Los Angeles Times ran a photo spread on the house in 1926, the accompanied copy didn't even mention Frank Lloyd Wright, instead proclaiming everything in the house was designed by Mr. and Mrs. Innes or by their builder. <laughs> by this juncture, Wright had abandoned Los Angeles to pursue a new life and a new love with a third wife that was 30 years younger. Still in LA though, his son Lloyd periodically updated him on the atrocities he believed the ungrateful owners continued to commit on the house. The Ennis Place is a site, he wrote his father in 1928, hideously maintained, painted, and botched. The stonework is splendid, however. If the Ennises would obligingly die, something might be done with their present monstrosity. Well, 
10 months later, Charles Ennis obliged. His funeral was held in the living room and soon Mabel Ennis auctioned off the house's contents. In 1933, it went on the market. The next owner was Laura Belknap, a real estate speculator who didn't stay there for long after discovering the concrete blocks leaked. When she asked Lloyd Wright for advice on what to do, he offered a costly remedy, which she rejected, opting for a cheap sealant. When Lloyd criticized her, and I gotta be honest here, he sounds like as big a jerk as his father was. Anyway, she moved out. The house had overwhelmed her. The next owner was Manley P. Hall, the founder of the Philosophical Research Society on Los Feliz Boulevard and the author of The Secret Teachings of All Ages, an occult history. Hall was a dazzling speaker and was one of the most charismatic cult figures of the 1930s. Although he also worried about the leaks, he didn't do anything to fix them. For him, the house was just a stage set for his over-the-top lifestyle. Using a glass tile fireplace as a backdrop, he set up an ornate lacquered Buddha shrine and held court for an array of truth seekers and celebrities. John Nesbitt, host of Passing Parade, a documentary program that aired on NBC Radio, bought the house from Hall in 1940. He was just making the transition to Hollywood at the time. MGM had hired him to produce short subject films and he fell in love with the Ennis house. It was at that time when Eric Wright was with his father to oversee the renovations of the house and the additions of a swimming pool and billiard room. Even after the renovations, Nesbitt didn't stay in the house for long. It was the next owner, Lau Corcoran, who would make the unfortunate decision to allow allied artists to use the place for the house on Haunted Hill. It wasn't a bad decision for horror film history, but it turned out to be really bad for the house. No sooner did the movie hit theaters than fraternity boys conducting initiation rites and kids on a lark began appearing at all hours to see if the place really did contain the torture chambers that Vincent Price used to dispatch his guests. Well, Lyle didn't take kindly to trespassers. As the owner of the Hollywood gun shop on Hollywood Boulevard, he was a crack marksman who once killed two elephants in the Belgian Congo back when big game hunting was still a thing, with just two shots. He'd also killed a robber who broke into his business, bringing him down with a 357 Magnum. Well, he responded to the intrusions at the Ennis house by letting two huge dogs on the property and patrolling the motor court with a shotgun. His confrontational approach just made things worse, though. One night in 1966, an unknown assailant tossed a hand grenade into the yard. The explosion shattered six panels in one of the art glass windows. In 1968, when Augustus Brown purchased the Ennis House for $119,000, it had been on the market for two years with a giant for sale sign visible from Los Feliz Boulevard, half a mile away, hanging from the south wall. Lyle Corcoran, who had essentially shuttered the place and was living in a room adjacent to the kitchen, had allowed everything to fall apart. Gus, who became the last of the Ennis House's private owners, said that the first few weeks that he and his wife spent in the house were terrible. Night after night, teenagers defaced the walls, rang the doorbell, and even tossed rocks through the windows. During the day, the couple battled leaky ceilings, disintegrating plaster, and crumbling concrete block walls. But Gus was a labor union organizer and had been around his share of tough situations. He had no intention of giving up. The Browns worked hard to restore the house, and after his wife's death, he donated the house to a nonprofit he created called the Trust for Cultural Heritage. He donated it for $10, and in exchange was given the right to remain there for the rest of his life. Eric Wright was so happy about this that he proposed renaming the place the Ennis Brown House. 
By 1985, it was a popular attraction for weddings and events, but more trouble was coming. Following complaints about noise and traffic, the Los Feliz Homeowners Association mounted a petition drive that led to a ban on renting the property out for events. Brown and Eric Wright protested, but to no avail. The trust was allowed to continue tours, but now it had lost the, most of the income from the rentals. Despite Brown's earlier efforts, the house still required a lot of maintenance, and its long-standing problems, especially the cracking concrete blocks, were growing worse. Gus tried everything. He attempted to donate it to USC and then the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, but in each instance, the deal fell apart for the same reason. Gus wouldn't step aside. Finally, in a moment of desperation, he threatened to remove some of the original art glass and sell it to pay for the upkeep. He hated to do what he said, but he had no choice. And then the war started. Gus began to be accused of embezzling money from the nonprofit he'd started to save the house, but even though the attorney general refused to file charges, legal battles ate up the last 10 years of his life. He hadn't been getting anything out of the house other than the opportunity to live there. And when the 1994 earthquake put the structure at serious risk, Gus was on the verge of giving up entirely. Well, as it turned out, he wasn't given a choice. During his final illness, board members of the nonprofit changed the locks on the house and forced Gus's daughter, Tanny, to hire a lawyer and remove her father's belongings. They even removed his name from the house. His time there will never be erased, though. It's likely the Ennis house would have been destroyed years before if he hadn't stepped in and tried to save it. As his daughter, Tanny, later said, it lived and breathed for him, and he lived and breathed for it. And that may explain why his ghost is still believed to linger there. The Ennis House, of course, still stands and it's available for tours today. And there are some who come to the house and get more of an experience than just to look at some amazing architecture. They also come face to face with Gus. And while he seems to be the most prominent specter to still walk the halls and roam the rooms of the house, he may not be alone. There have been sightings of several spectral figures in the house, both men and women, and they have been startling guests for a couple of decades now. Lights turn on and off, doors open and close, and sometimes you just might get a glimpse of one of the occupants of yesterday. Now, not far from the Ennis House, also in Los Feliz, is another of Lloyd Wright's Mayan-inspired houses. The enigmatic Souden House is an anomaly on an otherwise bright and sunny street. The house has been called cult-like and brooding, the Jaws House, and like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. In recent years, it's gained a new, much darker notoriety as the alleged murderous lair of the Black Dahlia's killer. Now, this author, for one, doesn't believe that's true, as you can hear in our Haunted Hollywood season episodes about the Black Dahlia, but it makes an interesting addition to the story of the house's iconic architecture. This story really involves Lloyd Wright more than his father. Lloyd had come to L.A. trying to get out of his father's shadow, and it worked. Even though the Mayan revival homes had been a joint effort of sorts, Lloyd went on to a distinguished career on his own creating avant-garde orchestral shells for the Hollywood Bowl and creating spectacular buildings like Wayfarer's Chapel in Palos Verdes and the Otto Bowman House in the Hollywood Hills. During the 1920s, Los Feliz was an enclave for silent movie stars, artists, and middle-class professionals like the Ennis family. John Souden was a retired artist, and he and his wife Ruth commissioned Lloyd to build them a unique showplace for lavish parties and for amateur theatrical events. 
The result was a Mayan fortress, which came complete with a stage, central courtyard, a secret room for booze during those days of prohibition, and the ornamental concrete blocks that were an integral part of the house's style. The unusual house quickly became an LA oddity. In a 1938 article in the Los Angeles Times, a writer profiled the home, which, quote, sure makes persons from the hinterland stop and stare on their trip to Hollywood. According to the Times, quote, one of the striking features of the Franklin Avenue structure is the massive stone and cement which project out from the roof line. My goodness, I wouldn't want to live in a place like that, one viewer gasped. That darn stuff might come tumbling down on you while you're trying to open them gates to get into the house. Well, them gates, as the bystander called them, are huge iron affairs that serve as the door to the house. And there's no danger of the massive stone and cement tumbling down. The entire building was constructed of steel, placed both horizontally and vertically. Well, in 1945, the already iconic house was purchased by Dr. George Hodel. The suave doctor's VD clinic catered to many of the elite residents of the city, and he was friends with people like director John Houston. Hadell moved into the house in Los Feliz, and his ex-wife Dorothy and their children soon joined him. Life there unquestionably became a nightmare. Hodel frequently beat his sons in the basement and threw drug-fueled parties and orgies in his gold bedroom. Well, in 1949, Hodel's teenage daughter, Tamar, ran away from the home. When questioned by the police, she said she had left because, quote, her home life was too depressing on account of all the sex parties. Tamar then accused her father and other adults of raping her during a party at the house. When questioned by the police, George responded bizarrely, stating that he'd recently been, quote, delving into the mystery of love and the universe, and that the acts of which he was accused were, quote, unclear like a dream. I can't figure out whether someone is hypnotizing me or I'm hypnotizing someone. Listening devices planted in his home picked up bizarre conversations and what seemed to be admissions of guilt about the incest with his daughter. The police did not, however, record any confessions of the murder that Hodel would eventually be linked with. Regardless, he was arrested, and when police raided his home, they seized pornography and found links to the orgies and sex parties that Tamar had described. But that was as far as things got. Hodel was acquitted after launching a smear campaign directed at his daughter. He soon sold the Souden house and left the country. For decades, the house was nothing more than a quiet, private home and an unusual L.A. landmark, but its story was just getting started. In 1999, George Hodel died, and soon after, his son Steve was going through some of his father's possessions and found two pictures of a lovely dark-haired girl that he was convinced was Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, whose unsolved 1947 murder is the stuff of Hollywood legend. Spoiler alert, though, the photos are actually of two different girls, one of whom has since been identified, and neither of them is Elizabeth Short, but let's get on with the story. Memories of rumors and drunken accusations linking his father to a number of evil deeds apparently came flooding back to Steve Odell. Family members and old friends then filled in the gaps, suggesting his father might have known Beth Short and might have killed her there in the home's basement. Again, spoiler alert, 
he didn't. But anyway, over the next few years, Hodel became convinced that not only his father murdered the Black Dahlia, he'd also been responsible for a number of other unsolved brutal murders that had taken place in Los Angeles in the 1940s. And he believed that some of these murders had taken place in the Southern House's basement. Well, as I said, I don't buy it. Don't get me wrong, George Hodel was a creep. And he did a lot of bad stuff, but I don't believe that he committed the murders his son has accused him of. And there's a lot of evidence to prove that he didn't, but you know, whatever appears in magazines and on TV. Anyway, one of the recordings that the police obtained after bugging the Souden house does appear to record a woman being assaulted in the basement. Steve Odell said she was killed and buried there, but if so, no one has bothered to dig her up. It's another part of the whole mess that is a little hard to believe. For the house, though, none of that mattered. The sordid news story only increased the house's profile and its market value. Its transformation from private family home into hip showplace had already happened in 2001 when a flamboyant real estate entrepreneur had bought the house for $1.2 million. He further transformed it, spending another $1.6 million to add a pool in the courtyard, cover the interior walls in metallic bronze and silver, open up the kitchen, and for some reason in a Mayan-style house, added Asian-inspired statuary and ornamentation. Yikes. In 2011, after almost a decade of hosting society parties, fashion shows, and reality TV productions, the house was sold for $3.85 million, and then in 2018, it sold again for $4.69 million. It's most recently been used as a venue for fundraisers and parties, and has even appeared on a popular television ghost hunting show. Is it haunted? I don't know. That show is nearly as credible as Steve Hodell's wild claims, so I'm going to have to say I think the jury is out on this one. Thanks for listening, and we hope that you've enjoyed this special episode. It was produced and edited by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. If you like the bonus episodes, we hope you'll spread the word about the Patreon memberships and help us expand American hauntings into the future. That's all for now. Thanks so long, and see you later. Dun-dun.